Welcome to the Dietitian Rehab Podcast, where we not only challenge and inspire dietitians to think outside the traditional dogmatic education, training, and attitudes for a mind wide open, but also to challenge anyone to think differently about their own health. We'll talk all things food, health, and nutrition related as we explore points of view, evidence, and strategies for better health that will allow you a fuller understanding of the hot topics that everybody's talking and asking about. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. I'm your host, Doug Cook, and on today's show, we have a special guest, Dr. Thomas Leedy, who is a board-certified cardiologist and a bar-certified attorney. After practicing adult cardiology for 15 years, Dr. Levy began to research the enormous toxicity associated with various types of dental work, as well as the pronounced ability of properly administered vitamin C to neutralize this toxicity. He has now written over 12 books with several addressing the wide-ranging properties of vitamin C in neutralizing all toxins and resolving most infections, as well as its vital role in the effective treatment of heart disease and cancer. His other books address important roles in nutrition and disease and health as well. He is a consultant for Libon Labs, who are a producer of top quality liposomal products, including vitamin C. And to quote Dr. Levy, when comparing regular vitamin C to lipospheric vitamin C, comparing the bioavailability of all oral vitamin C delivery to Libon Labs oral liposomal delivery is like comparing a squirt gun to a fire hose. So more on that in this episode, and for more vitamin C references, including some information on the pharmacokinetics of liposomal vitamin C, be sure to check the page for this episode on my website, dougcookrd.com. So let's get on to the show. Okay, so Dr. Levy, thank you very much for being on the podcast today. I appreciate your time. And so just by way of introduction for the audience, I guess I stumbled upon your work just browsing the internet, finding uh, information on liposomal vitamin C, vitamin C, and seeing a whole bunch of your presentations, which were really, really fascinating. And there's so much information around vitamin C that I think the public is in desperate need of and that they're not getting through traditional channels or kind of through traditional education route. So I'm just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, your practice, and maybe what got you interested in vitamin C in the first place. Yeah, sure. I'm educated as a traditional cardiologist. I'm board certified in cardiology. Uh, I also got a law degree. But some mm, 25 years ago now, after practicing cardiology for about 20 years, I Moved to Colorado Springs, Colorado, and after being there for about a year or so, I met a Dr. Hal Huggins, who is and was the world's leading dentist that was going against mercury amalgam inside the mouth and many other biological dental type concepts. Anyway, we got to know each other. He said, look, why don't you come by my clinic and see what I'm doing? And I did. And I might start by saying he had a clinic where people came from around the world. They had a treatment period for about two weeks where they had all dental infections and mercury removed, extensive supplementation and good diet instructions. And what I saw when I was there, I found very hard to reconcile. I saw critically ill patients not only getting better, but dramatically improving over the two week period. 
I even recall seeing a couple of multiple sclerosis patients that hadn't been out of their wheelchair in a couple of years actually take a few steps with help at the end of two weeks. And I said, well, my training tells me this isn't possible, but nevertheless, I'm witnessing it. And finally, one particular day, I saw an especially debilitated lady get a large amount of dental work, several hours, extractions, everything, the brutal type of dental work that puts a college student to bed for a week, like when he gets his wisdom teeth extracted. And instead, this lady, at the end of it all, was energetic, bright-eyed, wanting somebody to take her out and get a good dinner that she could chew on the other side of her mouth. And Hal was standing there, Dr. Huggins. I said, what's, what's going on here, Hal? This doesn't compute. And he pointed to the IV bag. I said, okay, she's getting an IV. So what? He said, well, it's what's in the bag. Okay, what's in the bag, Hal? He said, 50 grams of vitamin C. And I just, it's like I got a left hook from outfield. And I said, really? And it was actually at that very moment that I said, well, I'm seeing things that medicine told me isn't possible. They're occurring on a routine basis. At the very least, I need to start researching vitamin C on my own and see where it takes me. And that began the journey. And here I am 12 books later. Yeah, so that's fascinating. So approximately how long ago was that? You witnessed this? That all started in about 1993. So, yeah, so quite a while ago. And so what's interesting that you bring this up is vitamin C is not talked about, but it's not new in terms of it being studied and or applied medically if you look at the history, correct? Yes. In fact, and it's kind of sad but amusing that on the some of the medical and dental board cases that people call me about to help them out with actions against the board, their experts will routinely say vitamin C has not been established to do anything at all on infection, on toxins, this out of the other. And I immediately write back to the board. I said, I'm respectfully submit you need a new expert because there's been very few substances as extensively researched as vitamin C in the literature. And we can look at 40 to 50,000 different articles. Okay. And and everything that your expert says doesn't exist, not only exists, but it exists in droves. Yeah. And I guess it's some of the stuff that I I haven't looked at it extensively, but of course a big name was Dr. Klenner back in the forties was using vitamin C it's published data looking at various viral infections. And so it's, I guess it's just lost favor with antibiotics. Who knows why? But it's, it, the point is that this is not new and it's not fringe and there's tons of published literature on it if, if people want to take the time to look. So I guess as a cardiologist, there's some interest with the dental link, right? Because teeth can be an entry point of bacteria that can affect the heart. Was there? Yes, as a matter of fact, in my next to last book, Hidden Epidemic, it's very clear now in the literature, okay, that if not 100%, then very close to 100%, 95, 96, 97% of all heart attacks are caused by and allowed to continue to develop by the seeding of pathogens inside the coronary arteries. And when these pathogens from the mouth and these pathogens, once they get inside the coronary arteries, 
they colonize and proliferate. And the colonization and proliferation is one of the greatest sources of pro-oxidants and toxins there are. And a pro-oxidant and toxin is what consumes vitamin C. So virtually all coronary artery disease patients develop atherosclerosis because of the pathogen-induced scurvy inside their coronary artery lining. And they actually have a study where they did what's called atherectomies, where they carved out the blood clots inside patients with coronary artery disease and examined the clots with PCR testing for bacterial DNA. And they found 36 out of 36 to have dental and periodontal pathogens inside those clots. Now, there's nothing that's really further from the mouth than the coronary artery. It's on the other side of the vascular system, vein going to artery, have to go through the pulmonary system. Yet, here are these periodontal pathogens inside the blood vessels. And in normal coronary arteries, there were none. And so all I can say is last time I checked, 36 out of 36 is pretty close to 100%. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So for people to understand, um, I think people now understand there's trillions of microorganisms, bacteria, funguses, viruses that inhabit us. Some say that we serve them, they don't serve us. We're a host for them. So I guess what people, and you can correct me on this. So am I hearing that certain bacteria or certain microorganisms have certain parts of the body where they hang out. So what might be found in the mouth might not be found in the GI tract or on the surface of the skin. And to your point, these things from the mouth are getting into the bloodstream, making their way to the heart. Is that one of the kind of the dots to connect? Yes, and it's very interesting. We find the dissemination of the periodontal gum-related pathogens throughout the body associated with and probably causing a wide array of diseases it begs the point, why is the coronary artery so profoundly affected? Because probably it's the single most common periodontal pathogen metastatic type of disease that there is, even though, as I said, the pathogens had caused something else. And what I put it to is, as the pathogens and the affected gum and teeth, you chew on your teeth, you squeeze the pathogens and toxins, into the venous drainage and into the lymphatic drainage. Well, what happens with the vein? In the vein, you have very low pressure, three, four, five, six millimeters of mercury. So it goes down to the venous system, all low pressure, goes into the pulmonary system, comes out through the pulmonary artery, still low pressure, 10, 15 millimeters of mercury, down to the left atrium, still low pressure, into the left ventricle, and then whoop! the left ventricle contracts and you go from 15 millimeters of mercury to 100, 150, 180. And with the coronary artery getting 20 to 25% of the blood supply, you get an immediate high pressure, almost like a power washer effect mm -hmm. on the coronary artery endothelium. And that, that's why I believe it's so selectively more than other sites seeds the coronary arteries. Yeah, so it's just getting blasted into the arterial or the artery wall then. Right. So an interesting concept that people don't understand, which is very relevant to vitamin C is, of course, everyone's heard of scurvy, which is this kind of, people think of it in terms of systemic vitamin C deficiency. 
its job is to help produce collagen, which helps keep the blood vessels together. So hallmark of scurvy is kind of like bleeding out throughout the body. But what's I think new to most people, certainly in the medical field, is they wouldn't understand that you could have B vitamin C replete or have enough of it in other parts of the body, but locally or very specific discrete spots throughout the body, you could have a deficiency. And would that be because it's being used up? And as you mentioned earlier, there could be localized scurvy in the arterial wall? Absolutely. I mean, when you take in virtually no vitamin C at all, it's very logical that over a fairly fixed period of time, you're going to metabolize it all and you're going to have a body-wide scurvy. And then you're going to have the manifestations of poor collagen, weak blood vessels, proneness to bleeding, proneness to infection, horrible gums and teeth, which is all seen in end-stage scurvy patients that don't get vitamin C quick enough. But as we mentioned, pro-oxidants are toxins. Toxins are pro-oxidants. Pro-oxidants take electrons away from biomolecules. Vitamin C donates electrons back to restore those biomolecules to normal. Mm -hmm. So when you have a large amount of oxidative stress or toxins, in this case produced by pathogens, then yes, in whatever area the generation of that oxidative stress focally is increased, you're going to have a focal decrease or depletion of the vitamin C there. And by that reasoning, you can very accurately label the person as having a foci or focus of focal scurvy at whatever site the vitamin C is being used up in an accelerated fashion. So then eating is, we have to eat. Chewing is, mastication is a normal part of that. So we're going to have these bacteria enter our bloodstream. That's not the problem. Is that what you're saying? As long as we've got a good reservoir and a good immune system? Well, no, if your teeth are healthy, there, uh, in, any amount of bacteria released in the blood is infinitesimal oh, that, okay. your, that your immune system can more than easily uh, take care of. But we're talking about when you chew on infected teeth, which is okay. a root canal. And as, as I showed in my book, Hidden Epidemic, a lot of people, a horribly lot of people, have asymptomatic, pain-free, abscessed teeth. Okay? And you don't really know about it until you do a specialized test called a, a three-dimensional cone beam examination of your mouth. But the point being is, this is common to have infected teeth, unfortunately, even without root canals. Number two, all root canals are infected. Don't be confused as to that. And number three, in contrast, of course, to a normal tooth, if you have a large pocket or an abscess at the root of a tooth, which is the case in both the asymptomatic tooth and the root canal tooth, and then you squeeze on top of it with a significant chewing, and Dennis will tell you, that some of the highest pressures you can imagine are generated between two molars when they chomp down. So literally, it is a little bit revolting for people that are queasy, but literally, when you chew down between two molars and you have infected pockets at the bottom of the teeth, you couldn't possibly design a more effective mechanism to deliver pathogens and toxins throughout your body. And even more effective than a syringe. Why do I say that? Because a syringe only goes into the bloodstream. When you do it between your teeth, it goes into the bloodstream and the lymphatics. And the other part of the book, Hidden Epidemic, talks about 
while the infected teeth are virtually always the cause of coronary artery disease, they're at least 60, 70, 80% the cause of breast cancer because while the toxins are going into the veins and going to the coronary arteries, they're going into the lymphatics and draining down into the breasts. And nobody's really thinking about that, obviously, in terms of the medical world. So this is, this is a little unsettling, to say the least. Well, unsettling, but to anybody listening, it should be uplifting because lots of people, well, practically every, all people that don't know about what I just said, and they've been doing everything right, they've been taking their medicines, they've been exercising, they've been eating great, and then boom, they get a chest pain, or boom, they feel a lump in their breast. And what is their thought? And is what is the thought of the physician in charge? Well, you're just one unlucky son of a gun. Well, we can say that's your. No, it's not anything to do with luck. It's got everything to do with how aware your dentist is. Okay? Always go to a biological dentist. That's not an assurance of perfect care, but it's a lot better assurance that you're going to get a meaningful cognitive evaluation of your mouth to go along with the mechanics of uh, putting in and taking out fillings and, God forbid, doing root canals and things like that. So that's interesting. I just went to the dentist this week to get my scaling now that we're opening up the economy. So I'm going to ask in the fall about this 3D cone beam examination to see if, A, it's done, and B, if I have to pay out of pocket, I'd like to be interested. Well, I will say... All implant dentists have one because it's almost state-of-the-art now. In order to do an implant, you need to know the anatomy of the bone and everything as perfectly as possible. Many endodontists, the root canal dentists, which don't let yourself get roped into getting one of those, they have it. And a sizable number of the general dentists now have it. It's been around for 15 or 20 years, and it's sort of growing exponentially now in frequency. So... You should be able to find one, depending on the economy of the area that you're in, it would probably run between $200 and $400 out of pocket. You know, if you're, if you're like in New York City, it might cost you $800. And if you're in Wichita, Kansas, it might cost you $150. I guess I'm somewhere in between. I'm in Toronto, Canada. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. I'm wondering if we could switch gears and just to help people buy into this or appreciate it more. Can you generally just talk about the role of vitamin C and why it's so important for immunity? Just in general, and of course, everyone's interested in this around the whole COVID thing, and we're not suggesting that this is going to cure COVID, but just general immune support, why is vitamin D so critical? Well, as I mentioned earlier, let me expand on it a bit. All disease is different foci of increased oxidative stress in different degrees to which biomolecules, DNA, proteins, lipids, sugars, structural proteins, enzymes are in their normal reduced state or in their depleted and non-functional oxidized state. Oxidation is a loss of electrons and reduction is when your lost electrons have been restored to you. And with that in mind, it may sound like an exaggeration, but I assure you it's not. All disease is your unique array of biomolecules that are oxidized. Where are they located? What's their function? Are they, how long have they been there? Are they being reduced back again or allowed to accumulate in greater and greater amounts? 
and that determines your disease, that determines how well you respond to the disease. If you can get enough antioxidant or electron donation in that area in excess of the new oxidating forces that are coming in to keep them oxidized and to oxidize more. And as I mentioned earlier, the primary source of abnormally high levels of oxidation in your body are the pro-oxidant byproducts of infections. All the different uh, endotoxins, exotoxins. Also when pathogens rupture, they release a lot of free iron, which is one of the most pro-oxidant substances there is in nature. All these things then cause the disease. So with that in mind as to why you have disease, and oh, I might also add, we see lots of papers that says oxidative stress causes disease. Well, that's pretty much true because of what I just said, but a more accurate statement is increased oxidized biomolecules are disease. If you have any disease, if you have Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, fibromyalgia, the cell that is sick, if you will, mm -hmm. doesn't have some unique fibromyalgia affliction or unique Alzheimer's affliction. All it is is a different array and concentration of oxidized biomolecules. So all, with all that in mind then, that's where vitamin C comes in. Vitamin C is the premier antioxidant in your body, mainly because it's a small molecule, it's very close in structure to glucose, and glucose, of course, goes everywhere in the body. Well, vitamin C actually competes with glucose for the transporters to get inside the cell. So you have a setup, if you will, for vitamin C to go anywhere in the body. Since glucose goes anywhere in the body, no problem with the blood-brain barrier, no problem with getting into the subcellular organelles like mitochondria, endoplasmic reticulum, nucleus, etc. So it goes everywhere, number one. Number two, it has two electrons that donate per molecule rather than most of them that have one, okay? And it gives up the electron very easily. Some antioxidants don't give up their electrons as readily as others, so chemically it reacts quickly to reduce an oxidized biomolecule when it's in the proper chemical proximity. And with regard to the immune system, Really, when you look at the bottom line molecular mechanisms, it's just this unique antioxidant property that stimulates the immune system. But we know from studies that vitamin C increases B cell production, increases T cell production, increases antibody formation, increases natural killer cell activity, increases interferon production, and also activates the macrophages and the phagocytes so that they're more readily able to uh, fight infections. And in fact, when you have inflammation, inflammation is because there's a severe depletion of antioxidants, vitamin C, wherever the inflammation is. And an inflammation causes an acute immune response. And the acute immune response is always heralded by macrophages are the first cells to come to that area of inflammation. Well, guess what? Macrophages have the highest levels of vitamin C inside them of any cells in the body other than a neuron. And that is roughly 80-fold, 8,000% more vitamin C inside that macrophage than is in the bloodstream. What does this mean? This means, number one, that vitamin C is very important 
to the resolution of inflammation and the activation of the immune system. And number two, I would submit to you, my opinion on this is that the primary purpose of the immune system is to deliver vitamin C where it's most acutely and severely depleted. Yeah, that's interesting because other molecules like lipids, HDL, LDL, they transport a whole bunch of stuff as well. So I don't think they transport vitamin C like they do vitamin E and beta carotene and stuff. So that's interesting that these are uniquely designed, whatever the word is, evolved to almost super concentrate the vitamin C in them. And then they go out and they deliver it where it needs to be delivered. So um, on that, of course, I know the answer to this, but for people who look at stuff online, the recommended dietary allowance or the government suggests that all we need is 75 to 90 milligrams of vitamin C per day. So 75 for women, 90 for men. So I'm going to ask you, do you think that's enough? I already know the answer is no, but yeah, it's to prevent scurvy. Yes. And the primary problem with this conceptually is it's unfortunate actually that vitamin C got labeled a vitamin. What a vitamin is, is something that's required in relatively small amounts to prevent a deficiency disease. It's not part of the definition of a vitamin to take large amounts of it. But in fact, for many different reasons that we can show you, The primary fuel upon which every cell in the body runs comes from the electron supplied by vitamin C. So vitamin C, although it has a quote unquote vitamin-like role because you have a deficiency disease if you don't have enough of it, scurvy, its true role is it's the primary and most important macro, not micro, nutrient in your body. And this is why you're best off taking multigrams of it a day, not a few hundred or less milligrams a day. The other part of this that supports this concept is the fact that nearly the entire human population share a genetic mutation, which is the acquired at some point in time, who knows when, inability of the liver to make vitamin C from glucose. In nearly all the animals, except for primates, fruit bats, and guinea pigs, animals naturally convert glucose by a four enzyme sequence into vitamin C and obviously directly release it into the blood, so much more efficiently than taking something orally. And in so doing, this is the primary way. Well, wild animals generally live well until they die. They don't develop chronic illnesses, and it's this synthesis of vitamin C that accomplishes that. A human size, the 150 pounds, goat will make on the order of seven, eight, nine, ten 10 grams of vitamin C a day directly infused into the vein, which means it would be the equivalent of taking 20, 30, 40, 50 or more grams orally to get that type of delivery. But anyway, directly into the blood. And when that goat gets a life-threatening stress or infection, that production will reflexly increase to 40, 50, 60 grams or more until the acute oxidative stress-inducing infection or toxin exposure is neutralized and eliminated from the body. And because of this, this is really the etiology of all our chronic degenerative disease is different degrees of increased oxidative stress 
and our inability to take in enough antioxidants to deal with that. Probably even in a, even if you're able to synthesize vitamin C, you'd still have problems with a lot of infected teeth and root canals because they just release such enormous amounts of toxins. But if you're able to avoid high toxin generating infections in your body, a good regimen of vitamin C can keep you extremely healthy for the vast duration of your life. My personal opinion, mm-hmm. opinion is that if all root canals were eliminated and not started, and as a population-based intervention, everybody took 1,000 milligrams of vitamin C a day, I think your lifespan would go up eight to 10 years. That's just my opinion. Yeah, no, that's pretty amazing. And it's pretty consistent with other things that I've read. And I think people would have their minds blown if they rethink what you just said. So vitamin C and glucose are almost identical molecules. They're just rearranged slightly. Oh, and I didn't mention the, the, what's deficient in the human is the fourth enzyme. It's yeah. the fourth enzyme, galonolactone oxidase, is dysfunctional or is not made correctly. And so that's where it stops. That's not made, and the synthesis of the vitamin C is stopped. Also, point I didn't make earlier is guess what? When you have this enzyme intact, not only do you make more vitamin C, but you utilize excess glucose. That's probably uh, tongue-in-cheek why there aren't any animals in the wild injecting themselves with insulin. Gotcha. Yeah. So you, we eat carbohydrate. We get it from a whole bunch of different sources. It's broken into glucose eventually. And normally in all animals, except for primates and guinea pigs, it goes through this four-step conversion to vitamin C. And so I've heard it proposed that vitamin C shouldn't be a vitamin, as you say, but it, the lack of vitamin C production could almost be reframed as an inborn error of glucose metabolism. So we have these inborn errors of genetic errors. So I interviewed Dr. Anderson. I don't know if you know Paul Anderson. So he's done a lot of IV stuff. And so I said, I think it takes a greater leap of faith not to believe we need more based on that. But if he was being very practical and saying, well, we don't know that. We just know what the benefits are if we take more. So I think it's a compelling argument. So I'm wondering, because I want to talk about liposomes, and this is where you really are a leader in this area. So I'm wondering if you could help people understand that if they take vitamin C by mouth, whether it's a capsule or powdered and it's dissolved in water, What's the absorption like when it goes down the digestive tract and how much gets into the blood and what are the barriers? Well, you need these transporters that I talked about to bring vitamin C into cells and eventually have them released into the bloodstream so that they can go elsewhere. And the transporter mechanisms in the gut are rapidly saturated when you start taking things like vitamin C in because they bind up and then when you take a whole lot more, the transporters are occupied, so the rest just goes on out through the system, collects in the colon, and causes the characteristic uh, loose stool diarrhea that can be seen when you take large amounts of vitamin C all at once. So smaller amounts of vitamin C, 100, 200 milligrams, probably 80, 90% of that gets absorbed. When you start taking 5, 6, 7, 8, 9,000 milligrams, or 8, eight or 9 grams, probably only 10 or 15% is absorbed. However, you do the math, of course, mm-hmm. and that 10 to 15% of eight or 9,000 milligrams is still vastly higher than 80 or 90% of one or 200 milligrams. So it's not 
a reason not to take the larger doses. You just need to understand that you're trying to compensate for this inability to absorb large amounts of vitamin C all at once. And so this is where the liposome comes into such play here as being a vastly superior way to get vitamin C not only inside the body and into the blood, but inside the cells. Because when you take regular vitamin C, what you finally get into the system is just vitamin C by itself circulating in the blood. When you take liposomes, a liposome is a very tiny globule, if you will, of fat, much smaller than a cell, much smaller than a cell. And they were initially produced to allow experimentation with artificial cell systems. So what it is, is the membrane or the, the surrounding membrane of the liposome is incredibly enough identical to the cell membrane of the cells in your body. So when you take the liposomes, which inside the liposome is the vitamin C or whatever other your payload is, it has a bipolar lipid layer outside it that tends to be on the fat-soluble side while the inside is water-soluble. And what that means is, number one, you're protected from the stomach acids. It doesn't get in the way of that. You don't get any breakdown of the product, the payload. And because of this construction of the liposome, it goes directly into cells, either by reverse pinocytosis or it passes through some of the larger pores in the cells. You eventually get some into the lymphatics. When you take a large enough amount, the lymphatics drains into the circulatory system. And then when you have, this is important, liposome encapsulated vitamin C inside the blood, it's completely different from just vitamin C in the blood because the liposome encapsulated vitamin C in the blood then is free to go throughout the body and every cell that it encounters, it can attach to the cell, pass through the cell, deliver the vitamin C inside the cell, mitochondria, nucleus, and very importantly, without the consumption of energy. Even when you have regular vitamin C circulating in the blood and it reaches the cell, you need an active transport mechanism which consumes energy to get the vitamin C inside the cell. Or if you have oxidized vitamin C, there are portals that will get that inside the cell, but for it to be active, it still has to be reduced inside the cell. So even when you take vitamin C intravenously, the same amount of vitamin C you take orally by liposomes is much more impactful than the same amount of vitamin C you take intravenously because of these unique non-energy consuming delivery mechanisms to get the vitamin C inside the cell. Okay, so let's see if I can summarize this for everybody. So you take vitamin C by mouth and it, as a crude analogy, let's say there's a hundred doors to allow vitamin C in and a thousand molecules show up, only a hundred get through and while other people are waiting, you lose some of the vitamin C. So you take a big dose, some of it gets into the bloodstream, it goes everywhere where the blood goes, which is great. Then that free vitamin C still has another doorway to go through the cell individual cell membranes and then i don't know if some gets into the mitochondria or not so there's there are these barriers to get in there so iv vitamin c whatever you take is what you get so if you take a thousand grams a thousand milligrams or one gram of vitamin c a, a gram goes into the body 
mm-hmm. into the bloodstream where if you took a gram by oral, I don't know, we'll say f- some smaller amount gets in. So even the vitamin C that's in really high amounts from IV is still limited by the limitations of having to be transported into the cell. Mm-hmm. And then the liposomes, if they're fat, like when you eat butter or cheese, the fat goes from the digestive tract into the lymph system because it's transported like a fat and then it bumps into the lymph nodes and gives the maturing blood cells some vitamin c goes into the liver and then back into the bloodstream and then i guess one way to think about it is like it fuses if you will maybe that helps people understand the little liposome the little fat molecule bumps into the membrane it kind of just fuses and just offloads it absolutely yes without energy so i have a question for myself i don't think people are thinking it at this level but I've read papers where they've tried to compare the absorption and the amount that gets into the blood of liposomes versus other vitamin C, whether it's oral or IV. And they try to compare, which is the pharmacokinetics, so they try to compare apples, in my mind, apples to oranges, because exactly. if the, the vitamin C is in the liposome, it's not behaving the same way that the vitamin C is in the blood, which is kind of dissolved. That's the way I think of it. Is that accurate? That- Absolutely. Correct. Yes. So the free vitamin C, if you will, in the bloodstream is doing different things. So you can't compare what it does to the liposomal vitamin C. Let's say this too. If you have equal concentrations of unencapsulated vitamin C with liposome encapsulated vitamin C, and you do serial blood tests and you see the blood level declining, well, it's declining with the regular vitamin C because it's excreted in the kidneys. It's declining with the liposomes because it's being deposited in the cells. So that's that's how you see. Yeah, there's a couple papers, and I that didn't come out in that. And I think they were trying to. That was a a really important piece that I don't think people get that it's being cleared differently, and so that's we've answered that question about the liposomes. And so I think the absorption issue is it's important because smaller. So if you took, if you want to get the benefits of oral vitamin C, rather than taking four grams at once, if you spread it out like a thousand every five hours or something, it's, you're going to maintain a higher blood level, correct? Absolutely. And, and I want people to understand, I mean, I'm a consultant to a liposome company, but I always shoot straight with people, you know, because it costs more to take a liposome product than a regular vitamin C. And so for someone who's budget limited, it takes a little more effort on the part of the patient. But as you just mentioned, if you're willing to take a thousand milligrams four times a day, it might not be completely equal clinically to the liposome preparation, but you're going to get a good level of vitamin C in your blood and maintain it. Not only do you not absorb uh, as much vitamin C when you take a big dose orally, but what does get into the bloodstream goes up and then goes down and out pretty quickly over a few hours. So yes, taking regular vitamin C throughout the day, you can do a lot of good. I mean, there was vitamin C in its regular oral form, ascorbic acid, sodium ascorbate, curing and ameliorating and making better many infectious diseases, many toxic exposures long before liposomes were invented. Yeah, and there's some good studies on infections, looking at six to eight grams in divided doses, helping to reduce symptoms and duration. And then the other thing is when vitamin C is IV or oral, because 
oh, I don't hear you saying you should take one at the expense of the other, at the exclusion of the other, rather. It's doing different things, right? Like, it would have, does it have antiviral properties in the blood when it's dissolved kind of free form? Like, regular vitamin C, IV, or otherwise, is doing things. Is it doing any, I shouldn't say it is, is it doing anything in the blood when we talk about these antiviral properties, or is it just getting transported around? As far as we know, it's doing a lot in the blood as well. I say that because we have many in vitro test tube experiments where you put a pathogen or a toxin in there with the vitamin C and you neutralize it. I say neutralize because the virus isn't really alive. So we, so we use, loosely use the term killing the virus. You're really inactivating the virus, breaking down the protein of the virus, etc. So yes, as far as we know, that occurs with vitamin C just with the virus and even more effectively probably once the virus has infected a cell then the vitamin C as it gets inside the cell activates the Fenton reaction produces hydroxyl radical rapidly upregulates the oxidative stress and lyses the cell and the virus has nowhere to go so yes vitamin C does all those things does them extremely effectively there's never been a toxin to my knowledge that vitamin C has been tested against that's it's not been able to neutralize. Anybody listening should realize your number one agent for a poisoning or toxin overdose is large amounts of vitamin C intravenously. Okay. Also, if uh, your doc is aware enough to add some magnesium chloride to that solution because magnesium helps prevent what causes many overdose deaths, which is a widening of the QT interval in arrhythmias. The magnesium keeps that QT interval normal, and then the vitamin C can mop up the toxicity. So it's really a combination of those two things that if you get those on board soon enough, there shouldn't be any poison or toxin overdose that should take your life. And that would be, I guess, IV would be, you need a large... IV would, IV would be the best, yes. Now, I mean, uh, some people who live in rural areas, uh, so I've talked to people in the, in the outback in Australia and all, I say, look, I say your best first aid inside that is have yourself a couple dozen packets or a couple thousand milligram packets of the liposome vitamin C because it gets absorbed very rapidly. So if you get a insect or reptile bite on your ankle and you start taking the liposome, you'll either resolve it or you'll prolong it long enough to get somewhere where you can get the uh, intravenous support. And so to that point on your website, you, when you talk about dosing or rather things to consider when taking vitamin C, you talk about dose frequency and duration. So I think you've kind of covered a couple of those things. I, I, I used to, to say, I got to say this because I want the people to know that I try to always stay open and evolve with the information. Mm -hmm. I used to say, what's the three most important factors of vitamin C administration? And I'd say, well, just like real estate, location, 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 vitamin C is dose, dose, and dose. Well, dose is absolutely critical. And if you have available to you 50 grams that you can give intravenously all at once, that's really going to overwhelm and take care of most things anyway. But the 50 gram infusion is probably even surpassed 
by a smaller total amount, let's say five to 10 milligrams every six hours. So even though the total intravenously, even though the total that you take is going to be less than the 50 grams, spreading it out, making it more of a pulsed or quasi-continuous infusion will give you an even better clinical impact. So dose combined with frequency are the two most prominent and important factors in clinically effective vitamin C administration. So that would mimic or approximate what animals do, right? They're just constantly right, exactly. it out. Correct. And then the yes. other thing is duration. Like people will have a cold and I'm like, well, this is what the research says. It's like, well, I took it for a couple of days and I didn't see a difference. So duration does play a part because if an animal was sick and we could produce our own, we'd be producing it for as long as we needed. Whatever that was, the body would know. The critical thing about duration, especially with significant viruses, where you have a significant viral syndrome, and Dr. Klenner noted this many times, he even <laughs> experimented on his little girls with measles, that they were coping with measles back and forth. He'd, he'd give them enough vitamin C and everything would, and then he'd immediately stop, and then a few hours or a day later, they'd be getting it back again. Point being is he established very clearly, to my mind anyway, that whenever you have or reach a completely clinically asymptomatic or normal status in the context of an acute viral infection, do not stop the vitamin C. Continue it at the same therapeutic doses for at least 24 and preferably 48 hours to assure eradication of the virus. Okay. Yeah, that's, I think that's important for people. They take a bolus or one dose and they think it's going to cure everything. So I just have a couple more questions and I, maybe it's a bit selfish because I'm, I'm the kind of person that just needs to like overthink these things. So when, because I've heard you anecdotally, because I don't think there's been a test, but maybe you can clarify, is when somebody has, I think you were looking at a cold, if somebody has a bolus of 5,000 milligrams, I know this personally because I've, I've had it done as well that you, know, you saw a particular clinical outcome, improvement of certain symptoms associated with a cold. And then you found that when you took a particular amount of liposomal vitamin C that you got similar benefits. So you've kind of done this rough comparison between oral liposomal vitamin C to IV vitamin C. And I'm just wondering if you could talk about that because I know people think about liposomal vitamin C if they had shingles and they can't get close to someone who does IV vitamin C is there a, a rough conversion between the two I wouldn't even want to view it as a conversion it's it's a clinical observation that I made many years ago to my satisfaction obviously no clinical trial has been done I was not affiliated with this liposome company. They gave me liposome. They said, try it. I said, fine. I did nothing with it. Then I got the flu. My office had been closed. I couldn't take IV vitamin C. I had taken enough oral vitamin C that I was having continual diarrhea. I still felt bad. I remembered one thing, and that was they said, well, this doesn't induce diarrhea. So I said, what the heck? And I took five packets, and then I felt better in a few hours that I had when I had ever gotten a 50 gram infusion in the same setting. And this puzzled me, but I saw to my satisfaction this pattern repeat itself several times, such that I said, well, Dr. Levy, I think it's time you find out what a liposome is. 
okay? You'd have no idea what it is, but it had an effect on you that you've never seen before. And so that began that pattern. But very roughly, very roughly, I would say a gram of liposome encapsulated vitamin C properly. There's a lot of fraudulent liposomes out there. Mm -hmm. I'm talking live on labs, okay? They're the only one that I know of to my satisfaction that consistently makes a quality product. So if you want to get something other than live on, what I'm saying may apply, might not apply. I don't know. So, but with that type of liposome vitamin C, my opinion is that one gram orally is roughly equivalent or has the capability in some people of being equivalent to four or five grams intravenously. Okay, because of the uptake mechanisms, the lack of need to consume energy, that's everything in the body is energy dynamics. Now, let me add something really quick because you talked about colds and viral syndromes and all, and in the setting of COVID and all this other stuff, I've been writing about and seeing fantastic results with all variety of acute viral syndromes that virtually all begin by growing virus in your oropharynx, sinuses, throat, okay? That's nearly always the prodrome for just about all viruses, but including the flu, including COVID, all of these things, is hydrogen peroxide nebulization. When you nebulize hydrogen peroxide, you very promptly knock out a large quantities of the virus because basically most of your viral syndromes, even if they're present throughout your body, which is where vitamin C needs to do its job, you haven't addressed where it's being propagated most prolifically, which is in the nose and the mouth and the throat and the sinuses and the upper airway. When you can knock that out, Peroxide is very effective at that. As I like to say, you chop the head off the viral snake. And then taking the vitamin C, they can continue and get you rapid resolution. For those, maybe somebody will think I'm crazy for saying this, but since I've started this and propagated it and gotten feedback from literally people from around the world, I'm comfortable in saying that if you adhere to this hydroxygen peroxide nebulization along with your vitamin C administration, you need never suffer with a cold or flu or worse viral syndrome when you catch it early on. You can even be at the point where you're starting to have a sore throat, which I always thought for my own self, once a sore throat starts, no matter what you do, you're going to evolve through something for several days or longer, getting it out of your system and just taking lots of vitamin C would keep it less symptomatic. I'm telling you, when you just start to develop something in your throat or the runny nose or the sneezing, most of the time you can have it clinically resolved in several hours and almost for sure by 24 hours later. So there it is. It doesn't make me any money at all. Hydrogen peroxide is the cheapest substance on the planet, but my goal is to make people better. Yeah, no, we're just talking and it's just fascinating. And that's the whole point of my podcast is just to talk about all things for the interest's sake. And so I remember working in adult CF and we would nebulize lots of different treatments. So for people who don't understand, it's just almost putting it into a steam form, if you will, and, and breathing it through some kind of machine. And let me say this, I, 
I can't do medical consultations on people or give them specific directions on for your condition, you have to do X, Y, and Z, but I'm very open to more general questions by people by email. And if they want more and more information on the type of things I'm talking about, I can supply it to you by email. So I don't hide from anybody. Mm -hmm. You can uh, give my email address at the, at the end of this, if you want T E Levy MD at yahoo.com. But when people start getting, what do I do for this? Yeah. I, I, I have to stop the communication. But if you, if you want to learn more about it, I can push you in the directions where you can learn more about it and decide in concert with your physician whether there's some of these other things you want to do. Yeah, no, I get that. I, I get that as well, but I get that conceptually. And I guess one take home for people to understand this is that the interesting anecdotal, we're just, we're not just saying this is based on clinical trials, is that if one gram of liposomal vitamin C appears to be as effective as five grams of IV vitamin C, it's because even with that amount of vitamin C in the bloodstream from IV, it's still limited to get into the cell. So the liposomes are that much better at raising intra, which means inside the cell levels of vitamin C than, than the IV, which might help people better understand because I, you know, it just sounds like so much more what that you get from IV. And so it's a different mechanism. And we actually did one small trial at the Reardon Clinic and published it that showed in fact, equivalent amounts of intravenous or liposomal vitamin C got more vitamin C inside the lymphocyte cells that we were studying. So that's amazing. So that's the, one of the main takeaways I'd like people to get because anecdotally, I mean, I am a distributor of Live On Labs products. They're not sponsoring this episode, but anecdotally, if I take, you know, three to five grams at the first sign of a sniffle, I mean, if it's placebo, it's been placebo, if consistently placebo for five years. And it's just amazing <laughs> that this is, if people understand the, the science of it and the mechanics, it, it really does make sense. So last question. So should somebody choose one over the other, or is there kind of a, a protocol that might benefit people in terms of the type of vitamin C? Is it just liposomal? Is it a mix of two? I put out, and it's on my website, what I call the multi-C protocol. That's designed for people who have a certain infection, a certain medical condition, they start taking one form of vitamin C and they might feel better, but they have a lot more improvement to go. Then I say, well, you haven't really gained all the benefit from vitamin C that's available to you and you take other forms as well. So, but on the other hand, if you take one form and you get complete resolution of something, there's no need to take multiple forms. So for people who are significantly sick, I, I don't like to, with myself, take any risks, okay? If I start to get sick, I get IV and I take the liposomes, okay? And I might even also take some regular oral vitamin C because the regular oral vitamin C neutralizes a lot of the toxins that are forming in your gut. And if you do take enough to have a diarrhea, that's good because that diarrhea is flushing toxins out of your gut before they get absorbed, which everything is how much pro-oxidants, how much antioxidants you're getting into your body. And your gut is a huge source of toxins in just about everybody except the rare individual that has absolutely perfect digestion. Okay. So it's good to know. Yeah. Just for myself, I take a few grams of regular vitamin C a day. No rhyme or reason. I take 
one gram of liposomal when I wake up and then one before dinner. So I don't know. That's, that's, that's a my, good regimen. That's my, that's my thing. Regimen. So this was really, really fascinating. I know people are going to eat this up and I suspect it'll be a really popular download. But more importantly, where can people go to learn more about you and learn about your work like I have? What's website, any book, the books you mentioned? Well, all my books are on the website. The website is peakenergy.com, P-E-A-K, energy.com. Yeah, there's tons of good stuff on there in, in terms of articles, easy to read, and then all the books. So thank you again for the time. I appreciate it. And I look forward to sharing this widely and know there'll be great feedback. So thanks again. Very good. Thanks for having me on, Doug. Take care. Take care. Hit subscribe and get ready to expand your nutritional world, your perspective, and gain confidence in a way that you didn't know you could. And be sure to check out my website, DougCookRD.com.